Do you want to introduce our guest for today? I'm super excited for this conversation. We have an incredible guest today, Seed Signer, who is the creator of one of the most interesting hardware devices for holding your own private keys in Bitcoin that that I've seen so far. Seed Signer, you you sort of debuted yourself at the Bitcoin 2021 conference, but you've been in Bitcoin since what 2013 and yeah, we're so excited to have you. How's it going? Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me guys. I, I'm excited for this. So to answer your question very quietly since 2013, it wasn't until I guess 2020 or 2021, I guess it was, I was a more public Bitcoiner. I was just busy with other things and Bitcoin was uh, something I was, it took me a while to get down the rabbit hole and to sort my mind out, I guess you'd say. I don't know. I, I call my, my Bitcoin life as something that developed in two acts. In the, in the first act, it was an investment. In the second act, it took on a, a much deeper meaning in terms of you know checking the power of governments to create money at will. But we can get more into that. But yeah, been kind of like lurking in the space for a while. Yeah, yeah. And I was so excited to have you as a speaker, as an onstage speaker at Bitcoin 2022. I appreciate you being willing to take the stage. It was a lot of people who may not follow the project. I, I originally was a NIM. Obviously, I when I appeared at the 21, 2021 conference, it was on the open source stage. So it was a much kind of like smaller, quieter venue. And I, 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 I'm a little bit of a LARP, I guess, when it comes to the NIM thing, but as opportunities have presented themselves to speak more publicly about the project, I don't put my name out there, but obviously here I am, you know, appearing with you guys. So it's, it's been a, a developing adventure. Thank you. They're, they're frugally obtained. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about what Seed Signer is and why it is so powerful. You know, can you take us through, there's an amazing Bitcoin Magazine article that uh, you wrote recently with Keith McKay and Fadi, who were also at, uh, at Bitcoin 2022. And you did an amazing job. So I would encourage all of our listeners to go and read that article if you have not already. But Seed Center, can you sort of take us through what a, the, uh, the progression of sort of a hot wallet, you know, and what the pros and cons are there, and then you know, moving to a hardware wallet and the problem that Seed Signer really resolves or aims to resolve. Sure. Seed Signer was kind of an outgrowth of my background in digital forensics. I was a police officer for 15 years. And for the great majority of my career, I worked in a digital forensic lab. So I was working at, you know, a pretty technical level with phones and computers, hard drives, data storage, media, that sort of thing. And as I started to look for a new way to custody my own Bitcoin throughout 2020 and into 2021, I came across some projects that were super interesting to me. One was Spectre's Spectre Desktop and the other was Spectre DIY. And multi-sig is something that had been around before 2020, but it was one of those one of those technologies that begins, of course, at a very deep technological level, and it's not accessible to the average Bitcoin user. But Spectre Desktop was one of these tools that was one of the first on the scene to take multi-sig and start to make it doable and approachable for someone who was more of your average Bitcoiner. So as I was looking to create a better way to custody my own personal Bitcoin, I was kind of pulling some facets of my own background in digital forensics and kind of on the coattails of Spectre DIY wallet, which is actually functionally pretty similar to Seed Signer, but it, it predates our project. But it was it was a revelation to me. And a couple of the technologies that are baked into that that I found really compelling were one, this use of QR codes and animated QR codes is a very constrained way of communicating between uh, your coordinator software, which is what sets up your multi-sig and which is what inter interacts with the, the protocol. And then, of course, the device that interacts with your private keys that is on a separate device that does not have access to the internet. So the opportunities for that device to be compromised or to somehow leak your keys are extremely limited by this uh, QR exchange process. And, and then another concept I'll, I'll bring up is statelessness, seed signer as well as Spectre DIY are, are considered stateless, which is just a, a fancy computer science term for 
they either don't remember anything once you power the device off or they don't remember specific kinds of data uh, once you power the device off. So with Seed Signer, to jump back to your original question, in terms of the article that Keith and, and Fadi and I co-wrote for Bitcoin Magazine, these unique properties of statelessness and the air gap QRs address some challenges that are unique to areas like El Salvador, parts of Africa, what some people would have referred to as developing economies, these places where people are adopting a Bitcoin as potentially a savings mechanism to escape the inflation from their local currency or even the dollar these days. So statelessness first breaks the correlation, the one-to-one correlation that almost all kind of modern hardware wallets rely on between a private key and a physical device. So the model that's used by Trezor and Ledger and Cold Card to a great degree and Bitbox, all the hardware wallets is for every private key that you want to manage, usually you need one hardware device that you'll use to manage that. For developing economies, that's that's less practical yeah. because these hardware devices cost money and people are just beginning their savings journey and they, they may not have the funds to set aside for one of these devices. So a stateless device that when you input your private key into it, it does not remember your private key that that you entered into it when you powered off. So what that unlocks is it breaks this one-to-one correlation between private keys and devices such that a single signing device, and that's what I've always kind of referred to Seed Signer as, not a wallet, but a signing device, because it creates signatures for Bitcoin transactions. This device can be used by trusted third parties. There are a lot of multi-generational households in places like El Salvador. And so with trusted third parties, friends, relatives, and such, they can all use a single device to potentially manage not just their own single SIG wallets, but it also opens up the possibility of multi-SIG wallets, which in my belief is like, you know, first class independent Absolutely. sovereign Bitcoin custody. Yeah. And then before I start to ramble on too much, there's statelessness. And then this air gap QR exchange process that I referenced. The neat thing about that is that it makes Seed Center compatible with virtually any mobile phone or any computer just out of the box, as long as the device has a camera and a screen. So a lot of people in El Salvador may not have access to a desktop computer or a laptop computer. Their primary way of interacting with Bitcoin and the internet is through a mobile phone. And while it's possible to interact with a hardware wallet and a mobile phone, usually it requires either you're moving an SD card back and forth or you need some kind of an adapter to connect the wallet to the phone. Again, the cool thing about this AirGap QR exchange is the two devices just use their screen and their camera to interact with one another. So right out of the box, something like Seed Signer is compatible with, with virtually any smartphone. Yeah, and I just want to go back for a second and kind of step people through the the various terms that you talked about, right? So if you are, you know, new to Bitcoin, you your one's private keys are what actually control the movement of the Bitcoin that, you know, you own. And so, you know, you have like a 12 or 24 seed word phrase which then can be used to derive your private keys and, you know, they're the sort of like the the least secure option is what uh, what some people do is like they keep their Bitcoin on an exchange, right? So you've heard about all these sort of blowups recently, you know, Celsius, now Voyager, you know, Three Hours Capital. And if you had your Bitcoin on, you know, Celsius or on Voyager, you have you you now have lost the ability to withdraw it, which is crazy, right? Because Bitcoin is about radical, or it's about many things, but one of the things is radical, you know, personal self-sovereignty as it relates to your finances. And if you don't take control of your own keys, then all you really actually have is an IOU, right? You're trusting Voyager or Celsius or whichever other exchange, you know, you may foolishly be storing your Bitcoin on to make, make you whole when you ask them for your Bitcoin, but you don't actually own it. But Bitcoin, one of the, the amazing things about Bitcoin is that you can actually take full control of your Bitcoin and no one else can do anything about, you know, about that or to stop you if you hold your own private keys. And so, you know, there's a whole host of, of ways of doing that. Sort of the, the next step would be like a, what's called a hot wallet, which would be like a, a blue wallet or a moon wallet, that's M-U-U-N, which you have on your cell phone. And then you are in control of your private keys, but, you know, really one shouldn't, 
hold any more on a in a hot wallet than they feel comfortable, you know, carrying around in in a physical wallet, right? So however much you know value you'd feel comfortable sort of literally having in your wallet, that's probably a good amount to have in a in a hot wallet, which is again a wallet that is a signing device that is connected directly to the internet. What we're talking about now are hardware devices, which are purpose-built computers that basically that's that securely store that private key so that you can sign Bitcoin transactions. So when you want to send Bitcoin from one address to another or pay someone, you have to sign that transaction. And so, you know, there's a lot of devices out there. Some of the great ones we talked about a lot on the show, you know, like cold card, you know, Spectre DIY, you know, here's like, you know, Bitbox. So too, then none of these are sponsors or anything. These are just devices that, that I like and I use. And then of course, seed signer. And, you know, as, as it's going to get confusing because we're talking about the seed signer device and then also you as an individual seed signer. And as seed signer, the person was saying a second ago, the, the one of the, the things that's so cool and so exciting to me about this device is that it, it really democratizes this, this thing that's so important, which is having a way to securely control your own keys. So one of the problems with all these, you know, with many hardware wallets is that they're rather expensive. You know, it's, you know, $100 or more than $100 to, to be able to have this purpose-built device that lets you store your own private keys. And SeedSigner really has done an amazing thing, which is not only is the hardware, not only is it, is it relatively inexpensive, but it, as you were saying, Seedsigner, it you're not storing those keys on the device. And so it really allows people in other places and other countries who maybe can't afford some of these, you know, some of these more expensive hardware wallets to take control of their own keys in this in a, in a really powerful way. Yeah, I, I appreciate the additional context you provide there. Yeah. And one other aspect of our project that I did mention is that. It is a do-it-yourself device or something that you can assemble from off-the-shelf com components that, you know, you either buy through a local retailer or some of them are a little bit harder to find and have to be purchased on the internet. We've we've been hit particularly hard by the the pie shortages that I'm sure everybody's aware of. Maybe even more so from building nodes. A lot of people will use these kind of flagship versions of the Raspberry Pi to build nodes, and we're built off of a smaller form factor version of the Raspberry Pi called the Zero which has been particularly hit hard by some of these supply chain issues, but people are still out there finding them and still building seed signer. I, I, I think it's ended up being a real testament to the kind of the value of our project and what it offers and how excited some people are to build one. And then once they use one, how much it clicks with them, like people are are coming up with some creative ways to source Raspberry Pi 1.3s as well as take some of the other Pi Zero models and remove the wireless functionality so that they can build oh, a seat signer and have that same degree of assurance that, you know, that wireless communication isn't even possible that there's a secure air gap in place. But the the we can talk more about it, but we're starting to look beyond the Raspberry Pi ecosystem and Raspberry Pi as a platform will obviously continue to support it but we'd like to branch out to other microcontrollers as well so that in light of these supply chain issues, people who want a seed center can, can build it with something that they can readily get their hands on. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah. Yeah, and just to define some of the terms, you know, for the viewers again, when, you know, with a hardware device, some, you know, you can plug them directly into your computer, but ideally, you're using a hardware device that is, as you said, seed center is, is air gapped. So maybe can you, can you define what the term air gapped means and why it's valuable in this context? And even before I do that, let me just kind of explain, I guess, in terms of Bitcoin primitives, obviously, like you mentioned, there are private keys and people have what is technically referred to as a master private key, which is their seed words. And with those 12 or 24 words, you could rebuild your entire Bitcoin savings with just possession of those words. So those are the secrets that protect your Bitcoin, but those secrets aren't useful unless you have kind of the other side of your Bitcoin stack, which I would call the, we'll call it the hot side of the Bitcoin stack. And all hot means is that it consists of devices that are connected to the internet that are trying to interact with the Bitcoin protocol, because what use are your private keys if you don't have that connection to the internet protocol to be able to deposit coins and of course spend your coins so what this concept of an air gap does is we have some devices that are intended to interact with our private keys 
and then some devices that are interacting with the Bitcoin protocol. And this air gap ensures that there's no intermingling between those two devices that occurs outside of a very controlled way that users get to meticulously interact. And what this all kind of arose out of was my background in digital forensics. And, you know, hardware wallets were a huge leap forward for the industry because when I first started paying attention to Bitcoin, you know, it was either a hot wallet that was Bitcoin core on your computer and maybe you would encrypt your backup, but it's still the functional equivalent of a hot wallet. Or there were some early experimentations with paper wallets and ways of creating private keys offline and storing private keys offline. But hardware wallets were, they represented a huge leap forward in terms of security. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I just want to like, the, I mean, yeah, yeah. paper wallets, it used to be the case like early in early Bitcoin days that it was like, okay, first you have to take a laptop and then remove the Wi-Fi card. Then you use that laptop to generate these, you know, your private keys. Then you print out your private keys on a printer, which you have disabled the wire, the wireless card on as well. Then you destroy that printer and then you kill everyone who ever saw that. It's like, it was crazy. <laughs> right. There were some extreme lengths that we all had to go through to, to have some peace of mind in terms of our, our private keys being kept private. And hardware wallets, they, they introduced some trade-offs, but by and large, they were hugely poor because they're these specialized devices that have very specific characteristics in play that ensure that even though you're connecting it to a device that talks to the internet via USB usually, your keys are stored in what's sometimes referred to as a secure enclave, or there's some other technologies that, that reference that, but your keys are kept in a very kind of special data space that ensures that it's really difficult to get to, get to them. So that offered a leap forward in terms of assurances of being able to still access your Bitcoin in a relatively convenient way and have the assurances that it was on this device that had some mechanisms in place that kept it separate. But with my background in digital forensics, one of the things that we do is we acquire data sometimes from thumb drives, from hard drives. And in the digital forensics process, that's always something that we pay, pay very careful attention to when you connect one device to another to, to extract data because a lot of people don't realize it, but there's actually some things going on under the hood that people don't realize when you connect one USB device to another USB device, so to a, a thumb drive, to a computer, we'll say. And hardware wallets do a great job of mitigating most of those issues, but still in the back of your brain, maybe in your lizard brain, you're thinking I'm connecting this hardware wallet to a hot device, something that connects to the to the internet and the Bitcoin protocol. And that never sat well with me. And when I discovered Spectre DIY, that instead of using you know USB or even a micro SD card to move transaction information from the hot part of your Bitcoin setup to the cold part of your Bitcoin setup, it always that, that USB connection always just made me a little bit uncomfortable. So the, the AirGap QRs that. represent Can you for me this very elegant solution of moving that data back and forth. Can you reiterate why it's important to not have your device connected to the internet? Like what are the attack vectors that someone can, uh, could possibly use to get access to your keys if you have a device that connects directly to a device that connects to the internet? Right, and this is, this is a somewhat tinfoil hat uh, way of saying it, but when you connect that device via USB, if you can update the firmware via that USB connection, there are a whole host of possibilities that come into play. The nightmare scenario is that you download some sort of malware infested firmware that, you know, frankly, for seed signer and all devices, if, if you download, you know, malicious software, it, it potentially is going to do malicious things. But I think that's what you're alluding to that, that USB connection is just kind of, you, you can't see if there is activity happening on it when it's connected, obviously human beings don't have x-ray vision. We can't see into that USB connection. So what SeedSigner does, as well as Spectre DIY, and I'll give a shout out to Foundations Passport, as well as Keystone, and there's another open source project called Crux. All of these projects that leverage this AirGap QR exchange process, it gives users of those devices a very definitive sense of when information is being communicated from your internet connected device, which is what we call your, your coordinator. So that's something like Sparrow or Spectre desktop if you're using a laptop or something like Blue Wallet or even Nunchuck if you're using a mobile phone. It gives you very definitive assurances in terms of 
when is the coordinator that's connected to the internet communicating to my signing device, which is air gapped and offline. And then if you really wanted to, you could audit those communications to see what's in the, what's in the content of those QR codes. Auditing a USB connection, especially for, you know, the average users is a much more, <laughs> there's a much higher bar with that. And if you suspect that there's something malicious happening or you're just not comfortable with the workflow for whatever reason, you suspect that there's something weird going on with your coordinator, it's very simple to terminate that connection immediately. So you can, you know, pull your camera away from the device or pull your, your screen away from your laptop. But what that QR exchange does is it takes the communication that's happening between your coordinator, your laptop and your phone and your sighted device, which again is offline. And it lets that happen only one way at a time. And in such a way that you can be much more comfortable about at what point of the, the transaction process are we, what's happening right now. And that's another kind of batch of feedback that I consistently get about seed signer is because of the way that we break down the process of creating a private key and then deriving a public key for your private key. So you, you can set up a wallet and then the kind of hands-on more manual process of conducting a spend between the two devices, it helps people understand Bitcoin primitives and how they work and, you know, why you need to keep your private keys private, why your extended public key is something that, yes, it's, it's, that's what you need. And it's okay to, to communicate that to something that talks to the internet, but it's also a potential privacy leak too, because if someone obtains that extended public key, they can potentially surveil your transactions. And then the process of, uh, I'm going to lapse into some technical terms here, but a partially signed Bitcoin transaction, which people who are, you know, less technical in Bitcoin, a PSBT, that's just, you can just think of it as a rough draft for a Bitcoin transaction. That's kind of like writing a check. It, it specifies the amount that's going to be spent. It specifies the recipient. It says, you know, it's not on a check, but what kind of fee are we including with that transaction? you know, your, your Bitcoin account number. So where's that money coming from? That partially signed Bitcoin transaction is the format by which seed signer communicates with something like Sparrow or something like blue wallet. And that's, you know, the, the mechanism that we use to you first draft the transaction on your internet connected device. And then you pass that drafted transaction to your signed device where you can use a separate device, a separate code base to kind of independently audit what's in that proposed transaction, because that transaction contains the the fundamental information that is going to get broadcast to the Bitcoin blockchain. So you're looking kind of at the real deal and on, you know, your seed signer, your Spectre DIY or whatever device you're using, even with hardware wallets, you independently verify, okay, how much am I spending? What's coming back in unspent outputs? What kind of fee? What what address externally is this going to? And, you know, if all that looks okay, what seed signer does is it, it doesn't, you know, add your private key to that, that partially signed Bitcoin transaction. It just includes cryptographic proof that you have the key to spend the money and then incorporates that proof into the, the we call a PSPT or the rough draft transaction. And then the transaction is passed back. Now that includes proof of the signatures. It's passed back to the device that communicates with the Bitcoin network, where again, that's the final step is broadcasting it to be included in a block. But it's, it, it's so difficult to break down this stuff, but what Seed Center does that's great is it forces users to walk through this step-by-step process of, okay, I'm importing a private key. When I'm setting up a wallet, I'm communicating a public version of that private key to my coordinator software. And then when you want to spend, we have to move that draft of a transaction from the internet connected side to your air gapped offline side and then back once you've approved it. So it's, it's difficult to illustrate without, without visual aids, but talking through it hopefully clicks with some people. Yeah. And I, I want to sort of do a, a brief summary just for the people that are listening, right? So again, you know, really the the impetus for this conversation, and it's something that, you know, if you're in Bitcoin, we talk about a lot, is <clears throat> taking control of your own private keys, taking responsibility for your Bitcoin. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the news, Celsius blowing up, you know, Voyager, all this stuff, it becomes even more important. And so you can, it's a spectrum, right? You don't have to move all the way to, you know, a multi-sig setup with, you know, seed signer and, you know, and a cold card or multiple seed signers, you know, 
Every step that you can take is an improvement. The other thing that I want to say as we're talking about this and going through it is it is extremely, it's critically important that you as an individual are comfortable with these steps as you are going through them. So please don't hear us talking about, you know, the importance of taking control of your own private keys, you know, get, you know, not your keys, not your coin, get your money off an exchange and then go do it without actually understanding what you're doing and being ready for it because you can lose access to your Bitcoin and that would be fucking terrible. So there's just an incredible plethora of amazing guides that will walk you through the process of taking control of your keys. Go review those guides, understand them, and then, you know, make a test transaction, play around with it, you know, wipe your device, restore your device, use a seed signer. There's all these different things, but go through those steps and make sure you understand it before you just, you know, dive headlong in. Because I know this is a technical conversation and I want to make sure that people sort of hear that brief PSA. But again, you know, we're talking about the, you know, moving from an exchange where one might purchase Bitcoin to a, you know, sort of best in class security setup and how, and how one can do that with a device like seed signer. And to sort of reiterate what some of the stuff that seed signer said, you, you basically, you know, generate a transaction, which is sort of in this draft state it's called the PSBT, a partially signed Bitcoin transaction. And that's a, a standard that, you know, many different devices and co pieces of desktop coordinator software support. So once you've generated that transaction, then you need to take that, that, that data and then move it to a device that can sign those transactions for you. And so Seed Signer uses a really cool, it has like a camera on it and that data then gets sort of represented as a QR code. You can scan the <clears> QR code. Seed Signer will then sign the transaction for you and then you can, it'll generate its own QR code and then you can scan that QR code with the coordinator software that you use as it's being, you know, after it's signed by the Seed Signer and then you can go from there. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Would you add anything to that? Can I can I riff off that for a sec? Yes, please. So, and what's the end goal of all of this? The end goal is for people to be comfortable with their Bitcoin setup. That is like my whole journey with Seed Signer was just my own personal journey with my unique background in in becoming comfortable with my security setup. I, we talked a little bit about my backstory, and I, I never like to admit this, but I sold all of my Bitcoin in 2017. Early in 2017, I don't want to represent that I have any sort of great like trading or investment timing. But part of the reason that I sold all of the Bitcoin that I accumulated up to that date, big part of it was I was just not comfortable with my security setup. And I had basically a rough equivalent of what we talked before with paper wallets. I had a piece of paper with public and private key pairs that I created in a very secure fashion. But as Bitcoin grows and as, you know, the NGU technology kicks in, a lot of people like myself who just kind of have a very blue collar background were not accustomed to the type of financial gains that Bitcoin represented at that point. And I hadn't done a good job of updating my security setup to account for the amount of value that I was trying to safeguard. And it was starting to cause me more, you know, anxiousness and nervousness. And then with a lot of people, that's the first step of just like, well, maybe I'll move my coins on an exchange and leave them there for a period of time while I get my next security set up. Or, you know, it, it, it's just you start to question over time whether the financial gains that are typically achieved with Bitcoin over a multi-year period, you start to question, are those real? And having a better security setup that you're comfortable with and that you can periodically do a sanity check or as you alluded, that's upgradable over time. So a lot of people are hesitant to upgrade their Bitcoin security setup because they feel like maybe they don't have the knowledge or the skills to get to what they kind of think or have been told is the ideal security setup. And that that ideal security setup is still a moving target, even for, you know, e even for people that are deep in into it, deep into it like me in terms of the weeds with the details and stuff. So I, I want to encourage people not to be put off by, you know, don't think it has to be perfect. It's just something you have to be comfortable with and that should be an improvement over your current setup. So for some people that have their Bitcoin, you know, frighteningly enough on Coinbase or something like that, it's moving your Bitcoin from custodial wallet to a hot wallet. Maybe you custody on your phone. Now, if you're safeguarding a substantial amount of Bitcoin, that's probably not the best place to end. But then the next stop after moving into a hot wallet 
is moving to a hardware wallet or some sort of offline wallet. And then after that, maybe you start experimenting with something with an air gap, or maybe after that, you want to get into multi-sig and start playing around with multi-sig. But I, I just want to emphasize to anybody who's watching this, that it's a process and it doesn't have to be the perfect best thing, you know, right off the bat, definitely practice and be comfortable with what you're doing do the research, read the guides. We have some great informational resources at seedsigner.com, but make security a journey. It's, it's, it's the, the Bitcoin space is still writing the best practices for security and it's getting better and better, but don't get, don't get left behind. Be comfortable with how you're storing your corn. And I, if it's okay, I'll also just hold up. I usually don't have one with me, but I happen to have a seed signer with me today for people who have never seen one or may not be familiar with the hardware profile. As you can see, it's difficult with this particular one because it has a black cover plate, but there's kind of a thumbstick over here, and then there's a few buttons over here. So it looks like kind of a little micro video game system with a screen in the middle, but we have a very slick UI. And then as you referenced before, the screen is where the QR codes are displayed. That's how we move the information between your coordinator software, and then the seed signer. And we have a camera that's integrated in the back micro SD slot, which is where you load the software for seed signer. But this is what it looks like for people who, you know, haven't seen one in real life. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it, man. I just want to chime in really, really quickly because you two far more technically advanced in understanding Bitcoin, self-custody, privacy, and security versus someone like me. And I have no shame in literally DMing P or reaching out to P or Chris, or even shout out our former co-host, Alex McShane, to like help me because this is not an area where I understand. And I think there needs to be a little bit of humility with some of you who need to learn this stuff and reach out to your friends or you know, there's a lot of great resources all over YouTube from our channel as well as other channels on how to do this. And don't be afraid to ask, ask the right people. Don't just post on Twitter, hey, I need to set something up. Someone help me because you're just exposing yourself. Reach out to friends. That's just my two cents. I'm going to go back to just purely listening to this conversation. No, I think that's that's such a great thing to to reiterate that like we have all been there, right? This is complicated stuff. And I mean, like I said, like I, you know, when I was first setting up my, you know, hardware wallet years ago, I, <laughs> I generated it. I was like, oh my God, what does this even mean? I, I, I wiped it. I, you know, restored it. I sent a transaction. I sent a transaction back. Like that's, we've all been there and feel free, you know, really reach out to people that are around you. There's a great guide specifically about how to set up Seed Signer on the Bitcoin Magazine website. If you just go and you search like Seed Signer, it's one of the ones that'll come up. And it goes into extreme detail. If you want to read that or now or like follow along so you kind of like get some of the terms that we're talking about, go do that. But there's a lot of options out there. And yeah, reach out to trusted sources and ask for help. And I would also throw out there too, there are some great services. Unchained and Costa are the two that probably are the most prominent people are, are familiar with. Sometimes we as Bitcoiners think that we have to you know, do everything ourselves and we have to be the expert on everything. But Unchained and Casa provide like a super valuable service to a lot of Bitcoiners that might be able to do it on their own, but, you know, maybe they just like that additional little bit of confidence of having another company that that's their bread and butter. That's what they specialize in and, and do is helping people with custody solutions. Another advantage of those of those services is that they will hold a recovery key for you. So they, they are kind of native native multi-sig by default. So another advantage of using those services, and there's nothing wrong with it, is having a third party that holds a recovery key for you that if you have some sort of issue with the keys that you're holding, obviously they can't access your Bitcoin with their one key, but they can be that resource when you have questions or you're in a situation where you think you might have messed something up or something's not making sense. It's always great to have that resource and, and, and they're two great resources for people who are looking to upgrade their, their custody setup. Love it. Fantastic. Can I present a question to the two of you? Because I don't know how many people caught this, but it turns out that June was the highest month ever recorded of 
coins leaving exchanges to go onto cold storage. So firstly, I just want to give both P and myself a round of applause for pounding that drum. It's very, very <laughs> obviously because of us and only us, no one else in this space told you to take your keys or coins off of exchanges. But Everyone. the truth is like there is still the potential for this inevitable bank run. Seedsigner, could you maybe just share your thoughts on what that might look like of what does it look like if everyone all at the same time tried to go on, I'm just going to use the worst of the worst, Coinbase, because that's where a lot of people who don't have the best practice are unfortunately buying and holding their Bitcoin. What happens if everyone decides to go onto Coinbase and withdraw at the same time? That That is honestly an unknown. Hopefully Coinbase has, you know, the coins and cold storage and the liquidity necessary if that happens. But I mean, that's what they call in the old days a run on the bank. And that's when you find out like, you know, are your deposits truly secure or do you maybe, are you maybe just holding an IOU or the Bitcoin that you in good faith stored with that custodian? Yeah. Hopefully what they say is true, I guess. Time, time will tell. Okay. Back right. to our regularly scheduled program. But I, I would also, that's a good, like, part of the question is why independent custody? Why, why, why custody your own coins? And there's, that's one of my favorite reasons is it, it takes away some of the potential for some of these custodial platforms and centralized plat platforms to engage in the, we'll call them shenanigans that, that they can, when they're a custodian in terms of rehypothecating or playing with leverage that is to a dangerous degree. So one reason to hold your own coins is just to try and restrict the ability of these platforms to rehypothecate coins, which is kind of a, a, a way of stealing value from the Bitcoin network. If people can, you know, create platforms that through leverage or rehypothecation give certain financial act actors access to the price of Bitcoin without the underlying asset actually being hold to represent that exposure to the, the price. That's, that's kind of a co covert way of stealing value from the network and kind of subverting the power that is Bitcoin. So it, it helps put an end to that kind of stuff. But other reasons why you want to custody your own coins is, you know, you don't fall victim to these kind of rug pulls or like you kind of alluded, what if the platform you're on doesn't have your coins, you kind of ensure that you don't fall victim to that kind of thing. But, you know, as time goes on for more advanced sort of reasons, holding your own coins is foundational to using Bitcoin in a more privacy centric way as well. It's, it's the first step. If you want to use any of these collaborative transacting kind of services, getting your coins off the exchange and holding your own keys is, is the first step to that. Well, P's muted, so I got to keep asking questions. This is awesome. <laughs> I want to, you know, step away for a second. Just one second, one question. The importance of self-custody and individuals owning Bitcoin is far superior to institutions and countries and nation states holding Bitcoin. That is my, my firm assessment. However, these nation states and businesses have a significant chunk of Bitcoin. You can't ignore the amount that a country like Ukraine, El Salvador, those two countries, and I believe there's one more that actually has even more than both of those. I'm just spacing on it. You have companies like MicroStrategy, Square, and Tesla who also hold a significant amount of Bitcoin. What, in your opinion, based on what we know today and what technology and offerings are available today, would you, if Michael Saylor or Elon Musk called you seed signer and asked your advice of how they should be custodying their Bitcoin, how should institutions or higher net worth individuals or nation states be looking at self-custody? Right. And this was part of something I emphasized on, on stage and at the Miami conference this year is that a diverse Bitcoin custody ecosystem is an absolutely healthy Bitcoin custody ecosystem. Obviously, myself and my collaborators, of which there are many who are building seed signer it's a model that we really like and that we have a, a lot of faith in but the best practice because there could be a fatal flaw in any of the wallets or any of the platforms like us or another one the best practice for those kind of really large custodians and the best practice for 
individual Bitcoiners who are looking to kind of level up their, their custody posture is a multi-sig setup that implements several different hardware profiles and code bases to custody Bitcoin. So for example, like a multi-sig setup that is a three of five, that includes a seed signer as one of the, the co-signers that includes a cold card, that includes a treasure, that includes a Bitbox, and that includes maybe a foundation device. And that way, if there is kind of this Achilles heel type of fatal flaw discovered in one or even two of those devices, you know, it's, it's not the, the multi-sig takes that single point of failure kind of issue out of, out of the equation such that if there is kind of one of these fatal flaw scenarios where it's a retirement attack or some sort of other aspect of a platform is being, is being exploited, it's not game over for you. If just one of your five co-signers, you still have custody of your, your coins, you can migrate into a new setup that you know, incorporates a new technology and not the one that was compromised. One other thing that I point out as kind of a side note is a lot of the wallet providers have their own coordinator software that they sometimes tend to usher you into. I think Ledger is probably one of the most prominent this way in that while a Ledger can be used with a lot of open source Bitcoin custody solutions, if you're kind of a, a newbie to self-custody and you happen to choose Ledger as your custody device, which wouldn't be my first choice, but say it is, uh, Ledger tries to steer you into, I believe it's called Ledger Live, which is their, their own proprietary uh, software platform that is intended to help the Ledger hardware wallet interface with the Bitcoin network, or you know, if you're using it for some kind of shitcoining or whatever, but we're going to focus on Bitcoin. That is that that practice of having the coordinator software that interacts with the protocol and the hardware device made by the same entity is a fundamental security flaw. And that's something that I would emphasize to a lot of people as they're considering different custody setups. Have the the people that create the software that you use to interact with the protocol, have that be totally separate from the people that create the hardware or the software that you use to interact with your coins. So like Trezor has it as well. They have Trezor Suite, I think is what it's called. It's just in, in security parlance, it's called separation of duties and having the same entity create both of those, both of those sides of the coin is an opportunity for collusion that is a risk that you don't have to take. It's really important to leverage open source tools and wallet coordinator softwares that leverage the standards that exist in Bitcoin. So something like Sparrow Wallet or something like Spectre Desktop or Blue Wallet, any of these tools that that are separate from the hardware manufacturers. I think that's just an important thing to emphasize. But to get back to your original question, you know, the, the true best in class security at this point is a multi-sig setup that incorporates several different hardware profiles and code bases such that you know, if there's a compromise or, or a fatal flaw found in one of those platforms, it, it doesn't mean it's game over for you. And the thing that is so cool about this to me is like, you just laid out, Q asked, what is the most secure setup that would be that you would recommend or could recommend if Michael Saylor came to you? And you just went through and said that it's, you know, a multi-manufacturer, multi-sig setup that the, the beauty of this is that this is approachable for your average person. Like you can have the most secure Bitcoin setup possible for very, very low cost. And again, like seed center is so fucking cool because it makes it even lower cost, you know, the, you know, like hardware devices tend to be, you know, hundred plus dollars. And what's the, what's the overall cost of seed center just out of the door if you buy the components and then assemble it yourself? It's grown, as I've mentioned before, with the, the supply chain shortages. But I think if, if you find a, a Raspberry Pi for like 30 bucks, Pi Zero, hopefully a Pi Zero 1.3 that doesn't have the wireless communication, you can still get into a seed center for 50 or 60 bucks. And again, that can be used to manage multiple keys in a quorum. That's, that's a security presumption that some people are comfortable with, some people are not, but the, uh, the possibility is there. And I make the argument that multi-sig with a single device is still better than obviously single sig with a single device. So maybe a multi-sig that's operated with just a seed signer is a stepping stone from your single sig uh, setup 
to yeah. you know the multiple hardware profile multi-sig setup that I is kind of the the blue chip. And I I also want to shout out Michael Flaxman was kind of my journey to Spectre Desktop and my journey to Spectre DIY. And he actually came up with the basic concept that evolved into Seed Signer. He's a a security researcher and a, a cryptographer in the Bitcoin space. He wrote what is called the 10x Bitcoin security guide, which is I believe hosted on GitHub. And it at a high level kind of things I've been outlining at a high level, he goes into really into the weeds in terms of this multi-sig, multi-hardware profile, what threats that mitigates, why that's the best setup. And it's it's a great resource and it's publicly available. He may, he puts it out there. So I, I want to give him a shout out and that document as well, because it's a, it's a great resource for people. Yeah, I, I love that guide. Um, yeah, I agree. That's one of the best guides out there. I also want to recommend Keep It Simple Bitcoin has some great guides. It's another great resource. But, uh, and I know I keep sort of repeating some of these things we're talking about, but just to be clear, a multi-sig setup is where you define, you know, two of three separate, you know, sets of private keys are required in order to sign a Bitcoin transaction. Or if you want to add more security, three of five of the, you know, these devices are required in order to sign a, your transaction before it can be spent. And so, yeah, that's basically, that's basically it. I love, uh, you mentioned Sparrow. I love Sparrow as a desktop coordinator. He does an amazing job of showing a level of complexity that is, you don't need to understand what is happening, but it displays it in a way that is interesting and tends to inspire curiosity. So I learned a ton about how to, how Bitcoin transactions work by being like, Ooh, what does this mean? Like, why is it showing this change output over here? So for those of you that are just getting into this, personally, I recommend Sparrow Desktop Wallet. Yeah, Craig has put a ton of thought into the the visual representations that he builds into his coordinator. And like you're talking about how the, the transactions when you're consolidating UTXOs or there's change that comes back to you or you're sending to multiple addresses is a great visualizer that actually the concept we borrowed from in terms of on a seed site or when you review the transaction before you generate the signatures to approve it, we do that same thing. So Craig is is such a such an amazing builder and such a productivity beast in terms of what he's able to crank out. You know, mostly on his own with Spiro. There are other contributors in their GitHub, but he's doing a tremendous job as an individual moving that project forward. You know, as far as it's come over the last year, it, it's just been an amazing ride. Which actually, I, I if it's okay, I do want to give some shout outs to some people because a lot of people may look at BNC interviews that I do and think that. Seed Signer is all me or mostly me, but I am just one piece to the puzzle for something that has been something, a, a device and a way of thinking about coin security and Bitcoin custody that has been an emergent sort of phenomenon that is the result of a lot of people putting in their own input and their own contributions to our project. We have two uh, maintainers, both at different points of time, actually not two maintainers, two primary contributors, Keith McKay and another developer named Mick, Nick and ICK, who have both came in and moved our project forward in amazing ways when, you know, the project needed to be moved forward. I, I in my background, I, I was very deep into digital forensics, but I am not a coder. I learned just enough Python by watching Udemy videos to be able to get a proof of concept put together that showed kind of what this platform was capable of and maybe inspired other people with, you know, much deeper technological skills than I to jump in and start collaborating. And so Keith and Nick, but then other people have contributed with um, so many different case designs, 3D printed enclosures to hold the hard work components together. The gentleman in Europe who has taken upon himself to create a cold storage solution, he's known as Sniktoshi on Twitter and he has familiarity with metalwork and creates and sells these amazing hardware metal backup solutions that are kind of like natively compatible with seed signer. And, you know, I'm going to get myself into trouble because there's, there's so many names that I forget, but take a peek. It's the pin tweet on the, the flagship seed signer account that I manage on Twitter. I recently just did a whole kind of gratitude thread because there are so many people that have contributed from, you know, web development, to the guy who created our logo, to people that, you know, sell these devices to try to get them into people's hands and get the hardware into people's hands and then contribute a portion of the proceeds from the sales 
back to our development funds so we can help kind of reward contributors to the project. And yeah, there, there's so many people that have contributed this. It, it's truly one of the best decisions I made with regard to the project was when I decided to open source every last thing about it, because that made it a much broader effort than myself and a small number of others. Like people feel empowered to leverage their own unique and special skills to make Seed Signer, you know, a better project and a better tool and a better resource to the Bitcoin community. So that's that's something that I've been proud of as time goes on, how much of a collaborative effort it's been to improve and build and grow this thing. Yeah, I, the level of community support for not only Seed Signer, but for all the progress that we are trying to make in the Bitcoin community is just a sight to behold. It's a, it's really amazing. And as you said, it, it allows for such, for these leaps, these rapid like leaps in progress, because you have these multidisciplinary experts like yourself, like, you know, the software engineers you mentioned that are able to collaborate because we're all here for the same overall, like ultimate goal, which is the success of this critically important asset that, you know, has the best chance of being able to change the world and the lives of all of us in it. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. I wanted to ask you, what are some other, some other aspects of Bitcoin development, whether software or hardware that you are extremely excited about? What's caught your eye that you're, yeah, that you're inspired by? Yeah. Everything going on with lightning, I think right now is so exciting. Some of the, he's another hardware tinkerer. His name is Ben Ark. A lot of people are probably familiar with him. He's done some amazing things with a lightning a point of sale system, lightning POS, which can be incorporated anything from like a person who wants to accept Bitcoin payments at a flea market, all the way to automated vending machines. And it even doesn't require, it uses some, some clever crypto cryptographic tricks to be able to accept lightning payments without an active internet connection. It's truly an innovation. Some of the stuff that, that Lightning Labs is doing with Taro, I think is interesting and exciting in terms of taking a lot of, you know, alternative use cases for what is fundamentally just, you know, cryptography and bringing them back into, back under the Bitcoin tent, because there's a lot of things that are running on, you know, alternate networks like Ethereum and such that we, we can do in Bitcoin. And and something like Taro is such a, a great, has such great potential to kind of bring back innovation into the Bitcoin tent so we can focus on, you know, taking this one money and growing it into, you know, the biggest thing that can change the world instead of focusing on all these kind of other ecosystems. But what else am I excited about? I am not. So when, when you go down the Bitcoin custody rabbit hole, I tend to fall behind on developments in other uh, areas of Bitcoin. I, I try to keep up with Lightning as, as best I can, but I admittedly am not a Taproot expert. And so some of the more advanced scripting opportunities that are that are coming with Taproot activation, I can't speak to, but I've heard some of the use cases that excite me a lot, like some of these, uh, what I would call flexible multi-sig solutions that in terms of inheritance planning are super interesting to me to where, say you have like a three of five, that is your personal long-term Bitcoin savings stash. And, you know, you can set time locks such that, okay, for the first, we'll say 10 years of this setup's existence, I have to have three of the keys from that setup to be able to move funds or spend funds or whatnot. But with some of the more advanced scripting, you can write additional sort of conditions into the scripting that make it such that, okay, in the first 10 years, you have to have three keys. But what if I have some sort of critical security event that for whatever reason, like more than two of my keys are taken out and suddenly like I only have two keys, potentially like, you know, from years 10 to 20 of your setup, you can access and move coins with maybe only two of those keys. And then if you have some sort of further, you know, apocalyptic sort of event, maybe at year 20, you know, assuming you still have one of the keys and the coins are still hold, held in that setup, maybe you just need one. So it's, a lot of this flexibility in terms of inheritance planning and some of the the more complex setups that can come with that, I, I'm excited by that. It, it adds some additional complexity to the equation that I think builders have to be mindful of and we have to be careful about how we implement this stuff. But over time, 
you know, the tools and the best practices emerge. And so these, these new capabilities are, are exciting. Beyond that, the, those are kind of the, the two biggest things I'm watching right now. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. I, you mentioned the Ben Arcs project and I, I happen to have one right here. I, I love oh, very it. Cool. It's so, it's so cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. LNPOS point of sale, I believe is the, is what it's called, but you can, you can order them fully assembled for like 30 bucks. Cool, man. Well, that's all I got. Is there anything else that you want to, uh, I have a question. Oh, hit us, hit us with it. So I see Tanner, I know this may, be, may not be something that is at the forefront of your mind, but I'm sure at least, or at least I'm assuming there's some thought or some attention given to a lot of regulatory efforts going on just around the broader Bitcoin and crypto markets, both here in America, as well as all across the world. What is, in your opinion, like worst case scenario for any type of regulation that could come out? Something that would genuinely scare you to your core. So as an American, uh, I worry less about some of the issues that I think you're alluding to, because I think the, the beauty of the nature that is Bitcoin and the Bitcoin protocol is that it all boils down to free speech. A broadcast Bitcoin transaction is a form of speech that you know one or more individuals puts out to the world. So I am less concerned about the prospects of Bitcoin from an American perspective, but I have been more concerned about some of the developments that have come about over the last few months in the EU on the subject of, you know, what are called hosted wallets and restrictions on, you know, potentially people from holding their own keys. And some of this stuff has actually manifested itself in the States too. When you want to withdraw funds from an exchange and the exchange wants to, you know, white label an address. And I'm not talking just from a security posture where it's a common security feature that, you know, you whitelist an address that you know, you as a user have verified it's one that you control. That's more of for a security reason. What makes me nervous is when the exchange wants to whitelist an address from their perspective in terms of when they go to a chain analysis company and they can verify that, you know, that address is not involved with some sort of activity that they disapprove of. That's the type of whitelisting that that makes me more nervous. But some of the developments that you around self-custody, I, I think are concerning. I'm less worried about it in other parts of the world like South America and Africa, because I think as Bitcoin grows, the benefits of having access to a currency that's not controlled by an individual country whose you know, monetary policy or fiscal discipline people may or may not agree or disagree with, I think that the benefit for those developing economies to have access to a neutral reserve and transactional asset is so immense. I, I think, you know, the the possibilities of destructive regulation in those areas are less so. But in Europe, which, you know, I see as kind of a twilight power in the world, and they're, they're very restrictive in their control of the euro. And I, it, there's just some concerning things happen over there. So that's, that's the part of the world that worries me the most. But I hope that, that, you know, if some of these more dr draconian kind of custody measures are put into place. I hope that something like Seed Signer and other DIY projects is a tremendous resource for people who might find it increasingly difficult to get their hands on a hardware wallet or some type of signing device. So that's, uh, but ultimately, I think the future is bright. I, I think freedom wins. And the coin is definitely like a manifestation of freedom almost to the nth degree. Beautifully put. I think that, that is a great way, I think, for us to, to end today's thoughts and conversations. Seed Signer, we have your Twitter handle on the screen, but where should everyone else stay up to date with the project and everything else that you and your team are cooking up? Yeah, Seed Signer on Twitter is, is a great place to start. We also have SeedSigner.com and we have a great Telegram chat that's active that you can find links to on the website and also you know, poke around our, our GitHub repo. I've also written an independent custody guide that I'm proud of and that puts forth a lot of these ideas about independent custody and, and what makes sense to me and other people that are working on Seed Center. So those are the, uh, the touch points that I'd throw out. And we're just excited to you to grow and refine our model. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, this has been great. Everyone else, please like and subscribe the Bitcoin magazine handle. Like and subscribe Seed Signer. And we'll be back tomorrow with more exciting stuff. Thank <laughs> you.